Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. The Guardian. Malaria always sends a shadow of fear across me when I hear the word because I grew up with it. Dr. Alan Pamba, like many fellow Kenyans, had his first experience of malaria as a small boy in his grandparents' village. Now he's fighting the disease from inside a big pharmaceutical company, making sure governments and companies don't lose sight of what people need to survive malaria. Children below the age of five in sub-Sahara Africa are most at risk for malaria. If you look at the 400,000 deaths that happen in the world every year, 90% of those are in sub-Saharan Africa, and 90% of that are children below the age of five. Uneducated, hardly have a voice, and hardly have a choice. This is Small Changes, a podcast about how sometimes the seemingly smallest change can have the biggest impact. This week I'm talking to Dr Alan Pamba about the fight to eradicate malaria. I'm Lucy Lamble. So Dr Pamba, thank you so much for making time to to see us uh, in London here. Welcome to our, our studios in King's Cross. Thank you. What does malaria mean to you and and people living in in parts of the world that are affected by it? Oh, malaria always sends a shadow of fear across me when I hear the word because I grew up with it. And um, there are many people in the world, certainly my corner of the world, who still live with it. Um, Unfortunately, a large majority of those live in poverty. So the options that I might have, they do not have and they still live in a lot of fear. But I have a very clear recollection of the fear that malaria evokes in me, and of course in those populations. So let's just cast back when you were a young boy. When did you first become aware of malaria as an issue? Uh, Very quickly. Um, The interesting thing about my experience is I was born in a large family, one of nine kids. And uh, when I was born, most families were large because people died and commonly of malaria. I was a fifth born. Unfortunate for me, I was left in the village to grow up with my grandparents. Uh, the rest of the family lived in the city of Nairobi with my parents. So we didn't have enough room there. Uh, so I got first hand experience of malaria in the village uh, when I was very young. I might have been probably around four or five. Every child suffered at least one bout of malaria, or any fever would be called malaria back then. What did it feel like? 
You get a high fever, you get sick as a dog for a couple of days, you know, you shiver, you could be sitting out in the sun and you're freezing as if you're in, you know, winter in Canada, or it reverses, you could be covered at night with 50 blankets and uh, you are just absolutely cold. And um, terrible headaches, joint pains, at the peak of it, you'd rather die. Where you were as a young boy in the village, what would the facilities have been like? What, what, what was it there? What, what could happen if you got malaria? Oh, there was nothing. It was very basic. And this, again, I have to emphasize, is very true for many people today. So you have to picture the village where you have no running water, no electricity, and obviously no you know, stone or you know, proper buildings. We lived in an earthen heart, and we fetched our water from the river. And it was all quite you know, forested, if you may. I think actually the biggest lack was uh, was ignorance, no education. So our understanding and my parents, my grandparents' understanding of malaria was very limited to a traditional explanation of what it might be. And the remedies that were applied to it initially would have been traditional remedies, which obviously will not work until you get proper treatment. So many children end up dying because either the parents out of ignorance just apply traditional remedies that never work, uh, or they can't afford to go to a formal hospital even when they have that understanding. And who's most at risk? Children below the age of five in sub-Sahara Africa are most at risk for malaria. If you look at the 400,000 deaths that happen in the world every year, 90% of those are in sub-Saharan Africa, and 90% of that are children below the age of five. Uneducated, hardly have a voice, and hardly have a choice. So when did you decide that being a doctor was, was what you were going to do? I didn't actually know the concept of a doctor because I wasn't getting much of an education in the village. I had the concept of a traditional medicine man. That's what I wanted to be because they made people better. My biggest ambition as a little boy, my first ambition was to inherit the family business, which was my grandfather's cows. He had loads of cows. And my grandmother, for some reason, got converted by a Catholic mission to become Catholic. And they set up a village school and she got me to go to the village school completely against my will initially. Um, and so I played truant with my grandfather, would you know, go to school in the morning and then go sneak out and go with the cattle to the forest for many, for many months. And um, when I eventually got the opportunity to join my parents in the city of Nairobi and start getting a formal education, for the first time in my life, I was taken to a, a true, a real doctor. And I thought, wow, you know, I went in feeling terrible. I came out feeling a lot better. That's what I want to do. It's no small thing, though, learning to be a doctor. <laughs> what are the steps you went through? Oh, uh, well, the first hurdle uh, coming from my end of the world was that was not for us. So you had to overcome the psychological barrier because I came from a very humble background. And the second hurdle was, OK, fine, you believe that. How are you going to fund it? And uh, again, I have been very lucky. I got people along my journey who supported my education. Then, of course, the third hurdle was when you actually begin the training, you come into second contact with the challenges of healthcare delivery in developing countries, where you move from being on the patient bed to standing over a patient with challenging resources or lack, lack of resources and being responsible and accountable to make them better. That is huge, understated often, and we come out the other end as qualified doctors, 
but silently suffering what we see in the years of training. Your parents must be very proud, though. Um, yes, they are. They don't say it very often, but I believe they are. Um, if they had their way, they'd have me working in the village where I grew up, helping make a difference there. Uh, what I do now is a little bit different. I try and work at a hopefully a higher level where we can help more people uh, with my eight hours in the day, as opposed to, say, the 100 or 200 that I'll see sitting in a clinic somewhere there. So you came to Nairobi for your initial training? Yes, I did. I arrived in the city. I was the village bum, of course, who only spoke the tribal language and had jiggers on his feet. So I remember very well, my brothers would not walk with me to school as a little boy, and I'd have to basically be on my own. So my early years in what was a reasonably good school compared to the village school were quite lonely. Um, I became a bit of an introvert. But the positive side to that story is I read my books and I just discovered the beauty and joy of reading a good book. And the effect of that was good grades. And the effect of that was scholarships. That then allowed me to live the dream that I had, which was to become uh, a doctor. And you went straight on to university? Yes. So I went on to university in Eldoret in Kenya and uh, spent a couple of years there studying to be a doctor. This was an interesting time because during this time, we had the HIV AIDS epidemic. And my recollection of my early years uh, as a clinician, almost qualifying as a doctor in the wards trusted with patients, was that 90% of the beds will be HIV AIDS patients. So it was a very difficult time to train as a doctor because there was no treatment for these patients. And we ended up signing more death certificates than we should have as junior trainees about to become doctors. So those were tough years. Must have been. So you went then from Eldoret. What was what came next? Um, I ended up taking small jobs, uh, working for NGOs, uh, working for the government in rural health facilities, and then eventually settled for a role in uh, a town called Kilifi. It's a small town on the coast of Kenya near Mombasa, the bigger town. And this was a role with the Wellcome Trust. The Wellcome Trust has set up a research unit there, and they needed a physician who will support research work in malaria. So there are two key things I did in the five years I spent in that role. One was clinical trials to improve treatment of severe malaria in children. And the second thing was setting up a HIV care clinic, the first HIV care clinic in that district. Those are the two significant things I did, which I'm extremely proud of up to this day. After the break, we'll hear about how Dr. Pamba, now an experienced clinician, needed to be convinced that joining a big corporation was the best use of his skills. I did not join GSK because I liked it. I joined it because I hated it. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. 
Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello, Jordan Erica Weber here. In this week's episode of Chips With Everything, we look at the trouble with YouTube kids and ask, what exactly are algorithms? So at its simplest, an algorithm is something that we're all very familiar with. A cooking recipe, for example, would be an algorithm. It's basically a set of instructions that tell a computer what to do, and importantly also in what order. And how are they harming children? So to use some examples, Elsa, the character from Frozen, has been urinated on where characters are taken to strip clubs. Really inappropriate, really poor taste material for children. To have a listen, head over to theguardian.com forward slash podcasts or search Chips With Everything on your favourite podcast app. Welcome back to Small Changes. I'm Lucy Lamble. Before the break, we heard from Dr Alan Pamba, who explained how he went from being a cattle-herding truant to a leading malaria and HIV expert. You've been on an interesting journey in the last 10 years because you've moved now from being a daily practising physician to work in the private sector for one of the big pharmaceuticals, GSK. Correct. What's that been like, making that that transfer? What appealed you to to working in that area? Oh, oh, I tell you, (laughs) it's a big contradiction, right? Because I did not join, I always tell my friends this and they laugh at me and it's, it's true story. I did not join GSK because I liked it. I joined it because I hated it. I hated the pharmaceutical industry when I came out of, when I started medical practice. I told you the story about setting up the first HIV care clinic in this rural district hospital in Kilifi in Kenya. What happened is I set up this clinic against a lot of noise from my healthcare colleagues who said, why would you want people tested uh, for HIV and come to you when you can't give them anything? What I believed was give people a listening ear. And if people know their HIV status, they're not going to pass it on to someone else um, if they have to make that choice. It happens because they don't know. Most, in most instances, I'd like to believe. So I said, well, we're going to set up the clinic and I'm going to do my best with it. And I set it up. And they gave me the dingiest room in, in the hospital. And they gave me one nurse, which I was very grateful for. And it was right next to the TB clinic. So I walk in the first and I'm thinking, no one's going to turn up to a HIV clinic. So much stigma here. Queue of patients out there, I thought, TB patients. Walk in, the nurse walks in, pile of files. And I say, oh, this is the HIV clinic. It's not the TB clinic. Says, no, doctor, these patients are here to see you. So my first surprise, people want to be seen. Uh, And I thought, my goodness, this is an important service. Suffice it to say, I took the clinic from zero to 300 patients. I had 300 conversations with very young people, 21, 19, who had been diagnosed with HIV, a disease they had no idea about because half of them were completely illiterate. I went, doctor, I went to the maternity ward with my first pregnancy. I'm 19, they told me to come here. Did they tell you what your diagnosis is? No, doctor. Open the file, it's HIV AIDS. Let's have the conversation. She's 19. At that time, HIV AIDS was a three-year death sentence. I look up at her and I'm thinking, in three years, I'm going to be signing your death certificate. 
the worst thing you can ever do as a young doctor because you're young, you're enthusiastic, you think you can change the world. It hits you like a hammer in the head. I had 300 conversations with these patients. They became my friends. I saw some of them on their deathbed because the hospital would call me whenever they came in in the dead of night because they're on the end of their life. And many of them looked me in the eye and said, don't let this happen to our children. Now, what was I going to do? I was a junior doctor in the middle of a corner in Africa. But you lose sleep when you have this. And also I knew at this time, I was reading around HIV AIDS, I knew that companies like GSK and others had new treatments that were having a Lazarus effect on patients in the West. Patients who could afford $12,000, $13,000 a patient a year. My patients couldn't, they were out of that league. And I thought this can't be, this is, this is a human catastrophe. It can, it's no longer just about business. So my journey towards London was to get to the heart of the problem. I left Kilifi as a young doctor. I told the Welcome Trust, you've got to get me to the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine because my calling is in public health. I came to London. I studied public health at the School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, met an eclectic group of young doctors, nurses, people in the healthcare field from all over the world. And we shared our experiences and we built our networks. My intention was to come at this problem, one, from a public health angle, and second, to be an advocate for those voiceless patients in a deep corner in Africa who are not privileged to have an education. So the funny thing is, when I finished the London School, they post all these jobs on the wall, and the jobs go very quickly, and there's this one job that no one will ever touch. It was a job from GSK. They were looking for a physician from Africa with experience working with HIV-AIDS. There was only one in the class. And I kept seeing it and ignoring it. And I remember my friend Sharif coming and saying, Alan, You've got to go and interview for this because I know the recruiting manager. So I interviewed, but not thinking that I would take it, just to do Sharif a favor. Two and a half, two weeks later, they called me, they offered me the job, and I had a huge dilemma. I joined not because I liked it, I joined because I felt I needed to go in and understand what, what is going on here. I've been there for 13 years. Reason for that, I found human beings like you and me who mean well, but did not have the full picture of what was going on on the ground. Spent the last 13 years talking about what I see and I've seen in the front line. Lots of change, uh, including some of the things you see today. You know, um, GSK's medicines that were discovered by the company, a billion tablets are used in Africa, supplied by everyone else, because the company made a policy that we will not enforce patents on those. Anyone who wants to make them, supply them cheaply, let them do it development of the malaria vaccine, development of treatment for Vivax malaria. All those are things that I'm very proud of and that make a huge difference on the front line. What does malaria cost a society? What does it mean to, to Kenya to, to have this challenge? When I grew up, malaria was acceptable, unfortunately. Death from malaria was not news. It's a silent epidemic that is not seen for what it truly is. I think the pain of malaria sits with that woman who loses a child below five years and cries silent tears with just maybe the physician and us helping her, seeing her pain. Geoffrey Sachs, the world-renowned economist, did some work around this a few years ago, and I don't know how relevant his work is anymore at this point because the data is a little bit old, but the principle of it still stands for me. When Geoffrey Sachs looked at this, he said, look, Controlling malaria, just controlling it, not even eliminating it, would uh, create $12 billion additional earning 
to Africa, which when he did the calculation was equivalent to all the foreign aid coming into Africa. That should be, if I was in a position of responsibility in a government, reason enough to say we need to get behind this. What does it take then to eradicate malaria? It's been the dream, the vaccine, something on the horizon. I think uh, very strong political resolve. If you look at the malaria toolbox, I think we've done a pretty good job of creating a variety of tools that we can use to deal with this disease. We have bed nets, insecticide-treated bed nets, that work very well. Uh, you know, unprecedented for the first time, we now have talk around a vaccine. There is a vaccine out there, which is brilliant. We have had one of the most effective treatments uh, against malaria, the so-called atimicinin combination treatments, that work very well. And pricing has not been such an issue because you know work has been done to 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 you know get the best prices that we can for our patients. The challenge has been to effectively scale these tools. So that's challenge number one. And then the second challenge has been. You need to stay sharp with the tools uh, because mosquitoes develop resistance. So you have to, you know, look at the next generation uh, of bed nets or of uh, of sprays that will will suffice. And uh, the parasite also develops resistance. So you have to be constantly developing new treatments. I think those two areas were lagging behind. We're getting slow at innovating more, and um, we're getting slow at scaling up. One of your roles at the moment is is co-chair on a UN Innovation Working Group. What what does that involve? Uh, So the Innovation Working Group, it's really about uh, finding innovations that can be brought to scale and uh, that can make a difference uh, in today's world. Now, as we know, obviously, the space of, if we focus on malaria for one second, uh, it's a disease of poverty. Um, It's quite challenging to get innovation when you have poverty because most institutions that make investments for true innovations make it with an expectation of some kind of return. If you're dealing with patients who live on less than $2 a day, you don't go very far. Uh, So this is trying to understand are there uh, startups out there who would come up with innovations that could potentially make a difference uh, for diseases such as malaria in a way that hasn't happened in the past. Could we see universal free healthcare in in, in Kenya in your lifetime? We have to. If you liked this episode, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Even better, leave us a review and tell us about it. And join the discussion on Twitter. We're at Guardian Podcasts. And if you want to get in touch, you can tweet us there or email us at podcasts at theguardian.com. Small Changes is produced by Gabriella Jones, Rowan Slaney and Danielle Stevens. I'm Lucy Lamble. Thanks for listening. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts. 
That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Join us today during the Jeep celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15,178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE or Summit 4xE. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.